welcome independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, shadow citizens. Shadow Citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh. Right, here we are again, everybody. I'm Rachel McIntosh, host of Shadow Citizen. And tonight I'm really excited. We have a guest that I'm real, I'm just astounded he's on the show with me. His name's Ken Caldera, Caldera. And in the 1980s, Ken held a number of positions developing computer software for clients in New York's financial district. And now he's famous for his world renowned modeling on carbon, global carbon scale. Um, marine biochemistry and chemical oceanography, including ocean acidification and long-term evolution of climate and geochemical cycles. Most recently, he's recognized for his climate intervention proposals and energy technology. You may recognize his name because he was the lead author of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCCAR5 report, and was the coordinating lead author of the Oceans chapter of the 2005 IPCC report on carbon capture and storage. And I'd really like to inter- like have him come on on the show right now. Ken, are you here? I am indeed. Nice to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much for showing up for this. And we, I'm, I was just calling the hotel to see if you were there. And when I called, they patched me through to your room and we ended up talking to each other. And I was so happy about that. And you agreed to do this show. So thank you very much for doing that. Well, thank you. Uh, Now, I saw that you had released a paper two days ago, I think, called The Simultaneous Stabilization of Global Temperature and Precipitation Through Cocktail Engineering. What is this cocktail engineering? It sounds fascinating. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, maybe we could start back a little further further with just the whole sort of global warming. And um, so yes, I yeah, actually go got ahead. involved. I, 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 I uh, first heard, this will sort of show my age, but I first heard about global warming in 1979 when there was an article in the New York Times about how Antarctica might be melting as a result of our greenhouse gas emissions. And the most important greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide coming from burning of fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas. And and so at that time, I was had just graduated college and was working just doing computer programming and other things in the financial district. And uh, anyway, so I eventually went back to graduate school because I wanted to do something about this problem, I thought I should learn about it. And I came, went to uh, an unusual program at New York University that was combining energy system analysis with climate analysis, which was really at the forefront. And that was because it's a remnant of, um, in the 1970s, Jimmy Carter had a energy, clean energy research program that came with these oil shocks and so on. And so I came out of a, a educational program that, looked at integrating both sort of solutions with understanding the science of the problem. And most of my time these days is spent really uh, some on climate science, but probably more on thinking about energy system transitions and how do we stop 
making things with smokestacks and tailpipes. But just in the same way that a, uh, you know, if somebody's got, if a patient has cancer, you try to solve the underlying disease, but you also want to provide symptomatic relief and maybe give some painkillers and so on, that, that there's a similar thing with the climate system. The, you know, solving the disease means transforming our energy system so we don't have smokestacks and tailpipes and stopping cutting down forests and so on. But, you know, there might be potential uh, to provide some symptomatic relief, and this is very controversial. But, you know, if you look at – I'm sorry if I'm babbling on too much. No, I, I go right ahead. People are hinged here every word. That if you look at uh, projections for later this century, the tropics get extremely hot. And mm-hmm. – uh, the potential for widespread crop failures is large. And so there's at least some potential that there would be widespread famines through the tropics. Now, you know, I think if if actually the rich countries came to the aid of the poor countries, that there's probably no reason for anybody really to go hungry, but there's no reason for anybody to go hungry today, and there are plenty of people going hungry. And so... Um, Anyway, to back up a little bit, in 1974, a Russian climate scientist named Mikhail Budiko wrote a book, and he noticed that big volcanoes cooled the planet. And so, for example, in 1991, there was a big volcano in the Philippines, and the next year, the planet got more or less a degree Fahrenheit cooler, despite rising greenhouse gases, and it's thought that this big volcano put tiny particles in the stratosphere, the upper atmosphere, and these little particles reflected sunlight back to space. And since the sun is what really warms up the Earth, that reflecting some of that sunlight would cool it back down. And and from that volcano and other volcanoes, people understood that, well, we could do the same thing and put little particles in the stratosphere and reflect the sunlight. And it turns out it's, it's, looks like it would be really easy to do and be quite effective at cooling the earth. But but one of the things that happened after that 1991 volcano was the next year, the Amazon River had its lowest flow ever, and also the Ganges Brahmaputra for in India and Bangladesh had the lowest flow ever. And it turns out that... Um, that if you sort of heat up the planet with carbon dioxide and then reflect some sunlight away, you cool back the planet down the planet, but you make it drier. And so, not to get into too much detail, but the the um, the there's very high clouds called cirrus clouds. These are these little wispy clouds that you see on some days that are really high up, and those clouds have a warming influence on climate. And people have suggested that. We could uh, there could be engineering approaches to getting rid of those, uh, to, or at least to reduce the amount of those high clouds. Not not saying whether it would be wise to do it or not. And that method would also possibly cool down the Earth. But if it worked, it would actually leave the planet rainier than it would otherwise be. And so we had this sort of idea: well, if one approach dries out the planet too much and the other one leaves the planet too rainy, maybe if you mix the two together, you could restore both temperature and the amount of rainfall. And and 
the conclusion was kind of mixed, and the answer was, well, yeah, you could do that on a sort of sort of over the whole globe or over all land, but it, it didn't work regionally. So even though you sort of could make bring back the average regional precipitation, I mean, average sort of global precipitation that you still were left with big regional mismatches with some places getting wetter and some places getting drier. But anyway, it was more of a theoretical study. But mm -hmm. um, just to say that people are thinking about these kinds of geoengineering or climate intervention approaches, but but everybody working on it understands that it's just symptomatic relief and doesn't address the fundamental problem. Yeah, you mentioned the you made your analogy of cancer. Do you really feel that in your heart that what's going on on the planet right now is a cancer? Is it something that's going to kill us if we don't do something? You know, there's a scientist with a wide range of different views about how bad climate change will be. And I think um, that, you know, one of the things I study is ocean acidification and the effect mm -hmm. of our carbon dioxide emissions on corals. And I think, you know, we're already seeing coral reefs bleaching throughout the world. And, uh, you know, I think most coral scientists now believe that within a few decades, if we continue current patterns of emissions, that well, there might be a few reefs hanging on, they won't be sustainable, and there'll basically be no sustainable reefs left on the planet. And I think the coral reefs are the things that are getting hit by climate change and ocean acidification first. And, you know, the question was, well, you know, is the coral reefs just like the canary in the coal mine, and are there, you know, is the rest of the biosphere sort of marching behind them? Or is it really that that's the main thing we need to worry about? We we did another um, simulation set of simulations looking at uh, you know what would happen to Antarctica if we continue burning our fossil fuels. Now Antarctica will take thousands of years to melt, but if we continue burning fossil fuels, eventually it will all melt, leading to something like 200 feet of sea level rise over many thousands of years, but the rates of sea level rise, maybe not this century, will be sort of on the order of like an inch a year or a foot a decade, which is a pretty healthy, I don't know healthy is the right word, but a pretty rapid rate of sea level rise. But Yeah, you know, considering so, I live so, right on the water, right here in Rhode Island, so that would be a big, big deal, yes. Yeah, so, you know, if you have a foot, you know, an inch a year, it's, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, that's enough. Anyway, that's a pretty healthy uh, rate of rise. So, so, but, um, and, and so we, uh, let me just say a third study we're working on, which this one's not published, is something we're working on now. It's looking at, um, if, you know, if, if you look at, at where people live today and how that relates to climate variables and what kind of weather conditions people like living in, and then you say, okay, under a climate change world, uh, you know, how many people might be motivated to migrate as a f result of climate change. And what we found, I mean, people talk a lot about people from Sahel, from West Africa, where many people have subsistence agriculture and uh, and it's getting drier and it's harder for people to feed themselves. But, but um, and that would likely be an area from which many migrants would come. But most of India is already very hot and humid, 
And if it gets much hotter, uh, you know, there could be, uh, you know, a huge number of people motivated to migrate. And so globally, you know, we could be talking, you know, on the order of billions of people who would be motivated to migrate. And we've seen with, you know, what's going on in Europe with the Syrian refugees and so on, how, right, right. you know, how a relatively small number of migrants can create big dislocations. And so, you know, so, you know, there was, a, I think that, you know, some people think that, well, climate change is going to be kind of a nuisance and a cost, but we'll muddle through and deal with it. Other people think that, well, it's going to be, you know, catastrophic and existential threat to modern civilization. And I guess my view and some of my colleagues think I'm a little too uh, sanguine about it, but that that I think the rich people who live in gated communities might do fairly well under climate change, but if you're a Bangladeshi living on the floodplain or if you're on a small island nation that's going to get flooded or if you're a subsistence farmer and you can no longer grow the food to feed your family, for those people, it's going to be an existential challenge. And so, and, and so one of the questions is, does that existential challenge to disenfranchised people, does that sort of balloon up and become an existential challenge for everybody else? Or... Mm-hmm. You know, are the rich people living in gated communities going to be able to, you know, get better guard dogs and maintain their gated communities? Uh, but anyway, it's not a utopian vision of the world either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to keep babbling, sorry for babbling. No, no, it's but, okay. But it's the, more than okay. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you, though, back to this, um, the cocktail engineering, because I did read the abstract for it uh-huh. online. And I don't, you know, I'm no expert on this. And I just wanted to ask, what exactly is a sulfate injection? And what exactly is the cirrus cloud thinning, which you sort of touched upon? And is this all called forcing? Because I noticed the word forcing used. Yeah, well, climate scientists use the word forcing to refer to anything that humans do. Or, or it could be nature even. But anything done to change the state of the climate system. And so... That, um, that, uh, so if we add CO2, let's say we were to double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, that would mm-hmm. prevent on average four watts of, per square meter of energy escaping to space. And so we would say, oh, the forcing is four watts per square meter. And so basically the forcing is how much energy does some change prevent from escaping to space. And, and so if, um, and so the, so cirrus clouds, those high wispy clouds yeah, yeah. I spoke about, that if you removed all those clouds, around six watts per square meter more of energy would escape to space. So we say, oh, the radiative forcing from cirrus clouds is around six watts per square meter. So it's just a term for, how much energy is some process or, or feature keeping, you know, uh, 
in, in the Earth system and preventing from escaping to space. And so this idea of stratospheric aerosol injection or sulfate aerosol injection is um, this is the idea that was uh, pro first proposed by Russian uh, climatologist named Mikhail Budiko in the 1970s. And he noticed that after big volcanoes, the planet cooled off. Right. And, and so he basically had this idea of doing what big volcanoes do and putting aerosol particles in the stratosphere. And so this is now known under different names, but sulfate or stratospheric aerosol injection is one of those. And then more recently, so since that time, people have thought other ways to tinker with the climate system. And, you know, and I would just say that all this is going on inside of models and not the real world. And Oh, good. I was, gonna, I was just going to ask, yeah. is this, are we all on a computer or are we doing this like it's, flying around? And do, how's it, it, Tell me about this. It's all going on inside of computers, but people do want to do outdoor experiments, of which hasn't really happened yet. And so, uh, you know, and this is obviously – controversial and maybe we can get into this later um, mm -hmm. but um, yeah but just to go through the other idea of, of seeding cirrus clouds and I don't really fully understand the, the mechanisms by which it would work but again there's some idea would be to do some cloud seeding to make the cirrus particle the particles in the cirrus clouds bigger so they would fall out faster okay. um, but yeah I mean I would say you know, everybody should have concern. I mean, the problem is we're tinkering with the climate system by releasing carbon dioxide and methane and a bunch of other things. And, and you know, the idea that we're going to fix things up by tinkering more with the climate system, you know, typically when we interfere in complex systems, we tend to screw things up and not make it better. And so <laughs> the... Uh, you know, the idea that these approaches would actually help, I mean, they, I think they might help, but I, I think things would need to get in a pretty bad state before we want to take the risk. Okay. All right. So uh, I know that um, every day um, there's 6 million gallons of jet fuel used. What sort of volume would we be talking about when you're doing these on the computer? It's all theoretical at this point. Um what sort of volume would you be injecting into the atmosphere if if we're using six million gallons of jet fuel to get flying around every day? What do we talk about volume for this uh, type yeah, of... Yeah, so I think like each year you would need to put up an amount of material that, you know, if you thought of a, a giant cube where the length of each side of the cube might be the length of a football field... Mm -hmm. um, that's about the amount of material that you would need to put up each year. And the amount of, if you did it with airplanes, the number of plane flights would be equivalent to a few percent of current commercial aviation. So basically you're talking about a couple of percent increase in the number of flights. And it's thought that, you know, nobody knows the exact amount of money that it would cost, but, you know, something on the order of $10 billion or tens of billions of dollars, which is a lot of money, but um, 
converting our energy system is on the order of trillions of dollars. So, uh, you, you know, you're talking about an effort that's like 1% as big as the effort we would need to transform our energy system. Should we? Are we going to end up doing both, though? Or do you think we're just going to focus on the climate stuff and still continue what we're doing? Or are we going to end up doing both anyway? I think, you know, while we are building some wind turbines and solar farms and so on, the percentage of energy that's coming from fossil fuels today is almost the same as what was coming from fossil fuels 10 or 20 years ago. And the rate at which we're converting our energy system is at least a factor of 10 and probably much more than a factor of 10 too slow Mm -hmm. to really properly deal with the climate problem. And one of the problems is that humans, just our psychology, we're not that good at, at, at investing in avoiding bad outcomes. But once something bad happens, we're willing to do a lot. And so, you know, one, one scenario is that we basically continue doing almost nothing about climate change until there's something catastrophic. And then, you know, maybe we start deploying these, we meaning society, society starts deploying these symptomatic relief efforts and then get serious about transforming the energy system. But we're certainly not serious enough about energy system transformation right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, the combination of the sulfite injection and the cirrus cloud thinning, how does that compare with the University of Washington's plan to spray seawater from Monterey Bay directly into the mesosphere. My understanding is that the salt water <clears throat> would cast a big shadow and it would help cool the planet. Is that potentially safer? There's um, the idea you're referring to is called marine cloud brightening. And okay. there's certain areas of the ocean where the air is super clean. And if you look up at a cloud that's about to rain it's this big gray you know rain clouds typically look kind of gray and that's because yeah, the droplets are, <laughs> and they're, they're gray because the droplets are are big and if you look at a white fluffy cloud those white fluffy clouds have droplets that are small and it's if you've ever seen like either salt with very big crystals or rock candy that when it's big crystals it looks kind of gray but if you were to take a mortar and pestle and grind up the sugar or salt to a fine powder, the fine powder would look white. And it's the same basic idea of clouds, that when clouds are little fine particles, they're white. When they're big droplets ready to rain out, they're gray. And so the idea is to take gray clouds and turn them into whiter, brighter clouds that would reflect more sunlight. And their idea on how to do this is by making a fine spray of seawater. And then the salt in the seawater would act as nuclei to allow a bunch of very tiny cloud droplets to form. And uh, it's, you know, it's similar to cirrus cloud seeding. It's unclear whether this would work and at what scale. But I think if it does work, it's something that could be 
potentially done regionally, so maybe you could do it off the coast of Los Angeles and try to cool the desert southwest and, and might be uh, more acceptable. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but it's it's not been tested outdoors, although there are some people at University of Washington and other places who are trying to get an outdoor test uh, going, but that hasn't happened yet. The, the, the basic feeling is that the stratospheric aerosol approach, because it's more or less doing what volcanoes do, and we've seen volcanoes cool the planet, we, we pretty much know that one will work. And whereas this serious cloud thinning and the marine cloud brightening, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. And also the maximum amount, if, even if they do work, they might be able to address some fraction of the warming from our greenhouse gases, but probably wouldn't be able to offset it all. And And so this is why this idea, though, of, of cocktail geoengineering or using different approaches simultaneously so that maybe, well, one approach isn't perfect, but by maybe mixing a few approaches that you'll come up with something better. But it's pretty much at the at a fairly speculative stage. And, you know, I think if there was massive catastrophe next year and the poor countries of the world said, we need to cool things off rapidly, that the stratospheric aerosols would be what people would do. I should point out that even if we stopped all of our greenhouse gas emissions instantaneously the world over, that the world would stay warm for many centuries, if not thousands of years, and because the Greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, last in the atmosphere a long time. And so really the, these climate intervention approaches are the only ways known to actually cool the earth off within our lifetimes substantially or within a political relevant time scale. And so if, if there really are massive famines due to heat stress or droughts caused by global warming, and people demand that politicians do something, that transforming our energy system, while it's essential to do, isn't going to cool things off. They'll just prevent things from getting as warm as they would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And if you actually need to cool things off, at this stage, these geoengineering approaches are really the only, only known ways to cool things off within a few years. Okay, so the plant, um, the spraying of the seawater isn't scalable enough to deal with the catastrophic event you're envisioning happening. Well, first of all, nobody, since there's no, uh, nobody knows whether it, it would really work. I mean, this idea of the marine cloud brightening, People have seen behind ships at sea, if you, if you look at satellite photos of the Earth, uh-huh. that in certain areas you can see ship tracks like a, that look almost like a contrail from behind an airplane. Mm-hmm. And, and these ship tracks are because the ship's smokestack is putting out all kinds of dirty sulfur and other compounds. And, and these... Um, and so these white tracks through some parts of the ocean from the ships uh, is 
you know, is reflecting more sunlight to space. So people sort of think, oh, this should work because we see ships doing this, and but this, what the ship's putting out is sort of dirty city stuff, and you could pretty much get the same effect just by spraying seawater in the sky, which seems a lot more benign. But there there are details that I don't want to get it too technical here, but that that um, you know it might clouds are kind of tend to be updrafts, and maybe you're creating maybe right where there's this updraft you create a cloud, but maybe it's darker next to it where the air is coming back down, and are you really cooling things off? And so I mean it probably works, and it but probably is limited. And nobody really knows because nobody's ever gone out and really tried to do it. Mm. So, all right. So nobody's gone out and done this before. This is all theoretical as far as you know, what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, this is all in – I mean, there was some – I think the Russians did some little demonstration of something. But, mm-hmm. you know, all the uh, kind of stuff that I'm talking about here is done in climate models. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what you're thinking about, which is your climate models, if it was to happen in real life, what is the level of forcing? You told us what forcing meant. What is the level of forcing you might expect? Would it be minor like a volcano or would it be like uh, Pintabo uh, or Timraba event from 70,000 years ago? Yeah, so you're, yeah. you're sort of attempting to pronounce several major volcanoes. So, so the biggest volcano of the last century was Mount Pinatubo, and then was Tambora. So, yeah, so the Mount Pinatubo, um, that, uh, the, first of all, it put a bunch of material into the stratosphere, the upper atmosphere, and that material fell out of the atmosphere mostly after a year or two. Mm-hmm. If If that material if that amount of material were replenished and kept in the stratosphere, that would be enough. Or, you know, or the other way of thinking is if we ramped up to that amount of material in the stratosphere over the course of this century, that would be enough to offset more or less all of the warming expected this century. So that what we experienced in 1991 and 92 was more or less a full-scale, equivalent to a full-scale deployment of of a solar geoengineering scheme. And But since the atmospheric greenhouse gas concentration is increasing, you know, if we continued our business-as-usual scenario, which I hope we won't do, and we put in sort of 1%, 1% of Mount Pinatubo this year and 2% of it next year and 3% of the next year and sort of slowly ramped up, to full scale, that would more or less prevent all of the warming expected for this century, which, uh, you know, it's, I mean, and the issue is that it's actually relatively easy to do. And, and, and one of the fears of people is that people will think, oh, well, this, this easy techno fix that's relatively cheap and, small numbers of people can do on their own versus transforming the whole global energy system, which, you know, requires lots of effort by many people. And and I think really this framing as an either-or is a false dichotomy because, you know, the, I think everybody agrees that 
if you don't transform the energy system and you keep building up greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and then you keep building up the amount of particles in the stratosphere to try to offset that, that sooner or later that's going to lead to a bad outcome. Uh, you know, that's sort of like thinking, oh, I don't know, you're going back to the cancer metaphor that it's, you know, that, oh, I can still smoke cigarettes and et cetera, because, you know, if I get cancer, I can always have morphine to make it not so painful. This is not a way we want to conduct our lives, I don't think. Right, right. Um, so you said something earlier. You mentioned you're going to, one of the models you're looking at is injecting more CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, So that's, you know, that to me, I'm just a normal person. That to me is supposed to be like a greenhouse gas, correct? Yeah, maybe I misspoke or maybe I misspoke, but I mean, we've done plenty of simulations injecting different amounts of CO2, but yeah, CO2 is a greenhouse gas that leads the planet to get warmer and acidifies the ocean and uh, does a bunch of other nasty stuff. So although Mm. plants like... I mean, plants on land like CO2, and the plants, the, most of the carbon in trees and plants comes from right. the atmosphere. And so, uh, but for just about everything else, carbon dioxide is not a good thing. Okay. So you wouldn't be squirting more CO2? Uh, in models we do it, but I'm a, I'm, I spend most of my time trying to get people to squirt less CO2 into the atmosphere <laughs> right. in the real world. Okay. Uh, All right. Good. Um, now, here's my question. You said when um, the government, people, it's politically prudent to get involved with the, the environment like this. How do, when do normal citizens, the normal people get to know what's being proposed and that when, how will they be alerted that this is going to happen or that they have any sort of say in what's going to happen? Yeah, so this is a... Um you know, a big and complicated area and an act area of active discussion by many people. The uh, and you know, one can say about what ought to be and what and then what might be, and those might not be the same things. So, you know, I think most people would think inclusive democratic systems that you know, have input from relevant stakeholders and so on uh, is what you want. Mm-hmm. Now, in the real world, um, you know, governments are often not particularly responsive to the needs of the citizens, and uh, you know, and, and how you act, how do you actually get consultative, consensual decisions made on controversial things? Is, not straightforward there there's um there are people like there's something called the international risk governance council who uh, have previously worked on mostly nuclear weapons issues and they've turned their attention to this question about how you know how do we manage risk in this area and international cooperation there are also people who are social scientists thinking about governance structures and environmental treaties, thinking about how these decisions should be made. Now, I'm a physical scientist and not uh, an expert on governance, 
but you know, one of the things we do see in the real world is that not everybody follows international law, and so you know the United States, along with this coalition of the willing, you know, basic, you know, invaded Iraq even while the UN was still doing its uh, processes, looking for the weapons of mass destruction. Or Russia recently took Crimea and contravention to international law. And so, you know, so country, big powerful countries do things that they perceive to be in their national interest regardless of whatever governance mechanisms might be in place. And so, you know, I think if uh, push comes to shove and things get really bad, uh, you know, governments can just ignore international law. Now, another, but I think governments won't want to do this, I think, uh, because whoever uh, whoever starts toying with the climate system if somebody gets a major hurricane or drought or whatever, they're going to blame whoever is tinkering with the climate system. And so I think powerful countries are going to want other countries to do it. And But, you know, you can imagine if Ghana and Sub-Saharan Africa or broader regions of Sub-Saharan Africa are undergoing drought and famines that um, – you know, if the United States or China or Russia or one of the other big powers really wanted to deploy a system, you could imagine them saying wink, wink, nod, nod, and getting poorer countries to do it as their surrogates. Or anyway, you could imagine yeah, cl- climate scenarios. change. Climate change via proxy. We do a lot of stuff via proxy. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. just because I think nobody wants to get. No, I don't think anybody's. You know, you could just Im- imagine that some country started doing solar geoengineering the year before Hurricane Sandy hit New York or Katrina hit New Orleans, that, you know, the natural thing would be to blame whoever is tinkering with the climate system. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so I don't think, you know, so I think lots of countries might end up wanting some other country to do it, but I have a feeling that nobody really wants to take the blame and responsibility for it. I mean, the best thing, of course, would be, I mean, the United Nations is not a perfect institution, but, but you know, some kind of body that would be more representative and more inclusive uh, and make a well-informed decision consensually would be the ideal. But I have a feeling, just given how the world works, eventually somebody who's powerful enough who wants to do it might just do it. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that somebody was testing on the or doing experiments with the weather around the time of Hurricane Sandy? No, because no. Um, in order to do these things, you need a fleet of airplanes and you need to be putting out all kinds of aerosols and scientists would, um, you know, it would be observable both through normal military intelligence channels and as, and also scientific observations of aerosols and so on. So it, it, it's, you, it can be ruled out that anybody's okay. doing this already. All right. So if, if what you talked about getting the levels of um, however we want to do this, uh, this aerosol injection, getting up to that Tambora level, um, and you said you in your 
one of these plans that you were hypothetically talking about, you do it like you stagger it instead of just dumping out all at once a Tambora well, type of event. I like it to be as continuous as possible and spread out. Um, and, you know, people are starting to do simulations, looking at specifics of how you might deploy it. The, uh, but basically you'd like to produce some kind of even layer of particles and, you know, avoid kind of clumpiness in it. And so you'd like to probably have a bunch of airplanes and spread it out pretty widely. Mm -hmm. And and ideally you'd like everybody on the planet to be in agreement on this so that the whole planet is kind of, moving in the same direction weather-wise. You don't have these Yeah, although, you know, there, there are, um, I mean, I think if, if huge fractions of the world are starving, you know, that's not going to be good for the economy of the world. And so, you know, I think that if it really starts seeming like climate change is bad, you know, really bad for the planet, that there might be some fairly broad consensus to, to do something quickly. But the, um, you know, the, you know, while you'd like everybody to participate in every decision, the, you know, every day we're subject to this, other people make decisions that affect our lives that we get no input on. And, right. um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, but of course that's not good, but, you know, so, you know, eventually, unfortunately, power systems come into play and people who are powerful enough to make decisions and execute those decisions do so. And in the real world, not everybody gets to participate in every decision. And I noticed our government recently has been making a bunch of decisions that they haven't consulted with me very much so (laughs) yeah good good point good point all right so um now when us you know just hanging out on the planet the inhabitants of the earth just happen to be underneath one of these dispersals of what exactly what exactly would be dispersed on us during one of these there's different ideas of what to disperse but but what the volcanoes did was sulfur dioxide, that's sort of SO2. So it's like CO2, except it's a sulfur molecule instead of a carbon mm-hmm. molecule. And then that gas, that's actually released as a gas, and some of that gas makes it up into the stratosphere where it oxidizes into a sulfate particle. And actually, when it's surrounded by water, it really becomes intense sulfuric acid. And so it sounds pretty nasty, and it yeah. is pretty nasty. Um, but that's what the volcano did. And so... The uh, you know, so one of the proposals is to, eat, to put up uh, this SO2 gas, or there's other hydrogen sulfide or sulfuric acid, but there's other I, other ideas for other particles, and the engineering of it would be a little more difficult, but would probably be better for stratospheric chemistry. So, for example, um, David Keith has proposed uh, putting up. Uh, tiny particles of calcium carbonate, which is the material that coral reefs or seashells are made out of, or even there's 
little nano diamonds, little micro bits of carbon. And, and so, and these things would probably be better for Earth's climate system and the atmosphere than sulfur. But there's been more attention to sulfur just because that's technically easy to do, and that's what volcanoes have done. But but almost any little particle of the right size would do the job. Okay. All right. So the the choice between um, sulfuric acid and calcium carbonate, I, I'd likely want car- calcium carbonate myself yeah. because I don't know because it it sounds a little more palatable. I mean, I brush my teeth with baking soda for goodness sake. So, um, yeah, and also that calcium. I mean, just. Like a little side effect that might be concerned that, that putting sulfur in the stratosphere damages the ozone layer, and the ozone layer helps protect life on this planet. Yeah, and 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 uh, calcium carbonate has the opposite effect of helping restore the ozone layer. And so, uh, yeah, there's plenty of reasons why you maybe would like to use something like calcium carbonate. The um, the thing with the Sulfur is you can emit it as a gas, and then it disperses and then oxidizes to form particles of the right size, whereas to actually disperse the calcium carbonate and prevent it from clumping and all this is more challenging. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people are starting to think about how you might do that. Yeah. Now, as you know, I'm on this show, Shadow Citizen, on American Freedom Radio, and I'm bumping into all sorts of people that have got all different opinions about geoengineering. And I just want to ask you something, and I want, I want your real opinion about this. Okay. Um, th- this is what the, some of the things that people have been sending to me. Um, what, and here's my question, too. What does, why does aluminum have to keep showing up in these geoengineering things? Like, what does aluminum do to make geoengineering work? So, um, I'm, yeah, well, I would say the people who talk about aluminum, there's some conspiracy theorists out there known as chemtrailers who talk about aluminum a bunch. But, mm-hmm. I mean, aluminum has been mentioned. Almost any particle that's small enough will will have the same, a similar radiative effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, because basically you just want um, little particles that will scatter light, sunlight back to space without but that will let Earth's heat go out to space, and so their little particles will do that. And alumina uh, particles were, you know, another thing that could do it, but I don't think it's not been a focus of much research. Okay, because, you know, I think people, I've seen these studies, they look very legitimate, that they're, the healthy effects of aluminum are are not very good. They're like you get problems like neurological problems like Alzheimer's and dementia and they're not good for crops. And then on top of it, um Monsanto has developed a seed for aluminum resistance. And I don't know, you know, so people they must have known that this was going to be coming at some point. So can you comment on that? Because yeah, aluminum is one of the most uh, common minerals in Earth's crust uh, that Australia, to a large extent, is a giant block of aluminum, and that okay. if you if you reach into uh, pick up almost any 
not any rock, but many rocks that will contain a bunch of aluminum. And so it's not just this element being present. It's not so much an issue as to, but what form it's in and is it, you know, bioactive or what. But I'm not an expert in this, but I'm just saying that the, um, the focus has been mostly on sulfur and then people have been thinking a bit about other particles like calcium carbonate. And, you know, I think people have looked at aluminum just in terms of sweeping through what are the sort of radiative properties of different compounds, but it's not a focus. I'm at a meeting right now and I don't think, I think I heard the word aluminum once. Okay. No, okay. Nobody's proposing really putting aluminum. Oh, good. In. That's good. How how does aluminum then get in the rainwater? Because here in Rhode Island, where I live, there is a bill that's being passed around, um, an anti-geoengineering bill. Basically, it's, they're trying to license people that are taking off in airplanes and spraying chemicals so that your wedding day doesn't get rained on and... Uh, you know, it's one of those things. I think it's a way for the state to make some money, but, you know, I think it's also a way to try to curb the, the practice of geoengineering in general. And well, um, just I had my water tested when I heard about this this whole bill because I didn't even know what the heck this, this thing was about. So I had my rainwater tested, and it did, in fact, have sulfur in it. It had um, aluminum in it. It had barium in it. And it had something else in it. And I was like, how did this even get here? Yeah, well, it's probably the mineral dust for the most part. Okay. And um, the, yeah, so then, you know, so let me separate a few things. All right. There is cloud seeding, and that's often used as silver iodide and chemicals like that. And so in California, they've been seeding clouds for the last half century to try to get more snow on the mountains. I think mostly for having more water in the reservoir. Uh, and But there's a, uh, a, a set of conspiracy theorists who uh, believe that air, you know, your normal contrails behind jet airplanes are part of some nefarious secret spraying program. And it's hard to... Um, uh, you know, you know, there are also people who think the Earth is flat, or who think the CIA was behind the destruction of the World Trade Center, or said the CIA killed John Kennedy, and you know that, um, and you know that these people are true believers, and uh, you know are hard. You know, that I, I don't think they will change their views in the face of facts. And so we had we did a study where I'm not an aerosol expert or a contrail expert. And so we did a study where we went to 72 experts and asked them, like, would you have seen if there was such a secret spraying program? Would you have seen evidence of it? And and um, and basically, you know, and is and basically one of the people said that they once had a sample that they couldn't explain that had barium and aluminum and so on in it they couldn't explain, but but nobody thought there was strong evidence for any kind of secret spraying program. And 
just imagine, you know, I just don't see how you could ever keep something so big secret. It just doesn't mm-hmm. seem plausible. And also, mm-hmm. we, you know, the thing oh. is that you would see, yeah, you, you know, you would just, people are studying. I talked to somebody who's an aerosol person and said, oh, would you have see evidence if they were really doing this? And they said, yeah. And, that, you know, once they measured some sample somewhere and they couldn't figure out, what was going on with it, and it turned out a couple of blocks away, there was a, a dry cleaner, and the dry cleaner was putting out chemicals that showed up. And, and, and you know, so I think these things, many of them are just ordinary natural backgrounds. Some are industrial, mm-hmm. but none of them are indicative of, of any kind of secret nefarious plot. Right. How long does it take for something like the sulfur that was in my rainwater to do? be up in space or the atmosphere and how long does it take to come down as rain? Well, could it be I mean, like yesterday or could it be? Yeah. Well, I mean, sulfur, I mean, you know, there's, um, I mean, if it's in the lower atmosphere, it was probably there for a few days. I okay, mean, things okay. that are in the lower atmosphere typically rain out within a week or so, five days or a okay. week. That's good. Things that are in the stratosphere takes a year or two. So basically year. down here, Rain cleans out the uh, atmosphere pretty fast. But, okay. you know, let's say how could, you know, sulfur, I mean, there's a lot of sulfur in seawater. There are sulfur compounds coming off of from plankton. And, you know, there's... Oh, good you know, point, because I do live right here next to the water, next to the Yeah, ocean. so that could have been sulfur that came from... Uh, you know, from plankton in the seawater that gets rained down on you. It's not, um, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate taking the time because like, how long has this been floating around? You gave me some good answers there. A couple of days, if it was just low level or if it was up high, it was uh, like I'm actually just guessing too. I have to say I'm yeah. not an expert on that, but okay. I know that. No, but that was good because you made me feel better that. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> so but I, I know that rainwater, that. when water evaporates, it mm-hmm. takes typically a, you know, five days or a week for it to rain back out. And so that's a kind of characteristic time scale for sweeping things out of the lower atmosphere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, here's another thing. I heard that when physicists gauged their knowledge of the universe, it was some study they did, they missed 97% of it. And I watched global warming sort of pause uh, right after getting really terrified about reports about global warming in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And now it seems we're certain that we know what we're doing and not talking about modeling, but actually going out and doing it. And now we're going to put more pollution, more CO2 or more sulfuric acid in the air. And that's tough for a lot of people to swallow. I'm going to hope you come back after the break and answer some more questions with me. I hope. 